Good morning. Great to be together again today. What a privilege. Every Sunday, we count on it. It's on our calendars. But don't ever forget, this is a gift of God's grace, and it's so good to be together. So we have two weeks left in the book of Zechariah. Today, we're going to look at chapters 9 to 11, a little bit bigger chunk, and I hope you had time to read that ahead of time. And then next Sunday, we will end this book. And the title of today's message is Kings and Shepherds. And at first glance, we might think there's not a lot of connection there. Normally, when we think of kings, you think of prominence, position, notoriety, uh, recognition, all those kinds of things. And when you think of shepherds, you think of pretty much the exact opposite. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lowly, unrecognized, menial, kind of just doing what needs to be done. Now, I bring this up because throughout Israel's history, there have been many different kinds of leadership in place. If you think back, there was judges, there was prophets, there was kings, priests at times led the people. And all these different kinds of leadership in some way failed, telling us that as God's people, we are in need of better leaders, right? All of these things, be it a king at the top of the spectrum or a shepherd Lowly as he be, there is a deficit in human leadership, and all of these failings of leading show us that we stand in great need to be led by faithful leaders. Now, the problem is finding those faithful leaders, because all throughout we see that every leader is riddled with sin. Eventually, they follow their own way, they go their own direction, and fail. Now, as we look today at this passage, we're going to see a couple of different things. We're going to see God's promised king. So looking at the landscape in Israel and Judah, we see that there has just been a mess of leadership. But God does not leave his people. Rather, he promises that there is going to come a king who is actually just, who is actually righteous and follows the law of God and fulfills the law of God. And we're going to see an indictment against these shepherds, these leaders who had not been following the path of the Lord at all. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through kind of sections as we go. We're not going to read all three chapters, so you can relax, but we are going to read some selected passages as we go through. But before we get there, let's pause and ask the Lord to help us as we open his word together this morning. Father, what a joy to once again come before you, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, we just sang the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves, and even with all of the failings of human leadership, you not only promised a king, but you delivered on that promise. And so during this time of Advent, we reflect on the first coming of this shepherd king. And God, today, as we look at these chapters in Zechariah, would you help us to understand there is no one, there is no one to place our hope and our trust in apart from your King, Jesus. So God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and in everything we ask that Jesus Christ would be praised because he is worthy. And it's in his name that we pray now. Amen. Amen. 
I'm going to have you open your Bibles to Zechariah 9. I want you to follow along as we read some of these uh, texts as we work through today. It's good that you see it coming right from your Bible so that you know that I'm not making anything up. But Zechariah 9 begins a new section in this book. Uh, Formerly, in the first eight chapters, we had a lot of language about the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, the majority of what's talked about there in those first eight chapters have to do with the process, the motivations, the, the provision for the building of the temple. And then the last half of the book, nothing. No mention of this project. No mention of its workers. We heard a lot about Zerubbabel, the governor in Judea. We heard a lot about Joshua, the high priest. They don't show up at all in this last section of the book. In fact, even as you look in your Bible, it's probably laid out on the page a little bit differently, isn't it? It looks almost like Isaiah or Jeremiah versus kind of the narrative sections that we've been working through. So there are some striking differences. Zechariah concludes his book now with two oracles, that is two messages from God, one in 9 through 11, which we're going to see today, one through, and then 12 through 14, which we'll look at next Sunday. Now as we get into chapter 9 and start the second half of this book, we see God's promise to demonstrate his righteousness by bringing judgment on the nations around them. Does this sound familiar at all? (laughs) This is really what we've been seeing through Haggai and Zechariah, that God promises that those who have abused and persecuted and pestered his people, he won't let it stand, but he promises that in time he will bring judgment. And he calls out early in chapter 9 specifically a couple things. Tyre and Sidon, these were cities around and also the land of the Philistines. Now, interestingly, Tyre, the city of Tyre, was destroyed not even a hundred years later by Alexander the Great. And he comes in, and he's just doing what he does, conquering nations, destroying, taking possession of lands for himself and for his kingdom. But the interesting thing is that the methods that he employs to destroy this city line up exactly with what the word of God tells us. Look at the first uh, couple verses. Let's read verse four of chapter nine. But behold, the Lord will strip her, this is Tyre, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and will strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, when Alexander the Great conquers the city, he does exactly what the Lord said. He takes all of the people's weapons, all of their possessions, and he tears down all the buildings. I mean, this is like adding insult to injury. He doesn't just take over the city. He levels everything. And he uses all of this rubble, all of this material, all of their possessions to build a causeway out into the sea. So what he did was he took all of their possessions, all of their things, and he put them into the sea. That's exactly what God said would happen. Then after he dealt with all the people there in the most horrible ways imaginable, he burns the city to the ground. Now this is not the main point of this text, but why do I bring this up right here? I bring this up because I want you to know, especially, we have a lot of younger people here. College age, younger, middle school, high school. I want you to have confidence that every word of the Bible is true. This is not some book of myths. 
disconnected from world history. This is world history. And when someone challenges you, you get into the educational arena. So much of the curriculum, especially history nowadays, is trying to separate itself from the Bible. That's a bunch of stories. You can't trust that. Oh, yes, you can. It is verifiable. It is true. And I want you to have confidence that when someone comes up to you and says, why do you believe that Bible? You ought not to say, well, my parents believed it. Well, good for them. What about you? Or, well, that's just what I grew up hearing. Great, what do you believe now? And I want you to have the confidence that when you enter whatever sphere God brings you into, you can have confidence that the word of God is absolutely true. It is not stories. It is not made up myths. So when someone challenges you and says, why do you believe the Bible? You can say, because Alexander the Great destroyed Tyre in 335 BC. And they'll look at you like, okay, so what? And then you tell them, you tell them that this is just so great. I, again, this is not the main point this morning, but I am so jealous for you to have confidence in the word of God. Every part of this is true. And you know what? If this part is true, the next part is true, the next part is true. And when it comes to the promises of God and the things that he tells his people, brothers and sisters, you can know that this is true. So don't ever let someone back you into the corner because this contradicts history. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. This is history. So have confidence that the word of God is true. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. So verses one through eight show us this whole section is this demonstration of what God is going to do and what God did to avenge the people that he has loved. Now in verses nine to 13, we see God is going to extend deliverance through his people and how fitting that we come to this text during Advent season because this is what it's pointing forward to. Read verses nine to 13 with me in your Bible. Actually, I might just read nine and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now when God says, behold, your king is coming, what he is referring to is the promised, expected king in the line of David, the Davidic king. So if you remember back 2 Samuel 7, here's 1 Samuel 7, God promises that the descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. Well, no human king lasts forever. So we already know there's a pointer, there's something looking forward to a greater king, a greater Messiah, a savior. And here again, God says, behold, your king is coming. He is referencing this promised, longed for, anticipated deliverer who would set his people free. But there are some differences between this king and all the other kings that have come before him, and we need to notice some of this. Why does God say to rejoice at the news of this coming king? Why is this good news? Precisely because he is not going to be like all the other kings. What are some of the characteristics we see in the text? First of all, this king is going to be righteous, and bringing salvation with him. 
Well, when we consider all of the other kings in redemptive history, virtually none of them fit that description. Maybe for a time they acted in accordance with the word of God, but eventually, like I said at the beginning, everyone follows their own way and gets led astray by sinful desires. So this king is different. He's bringing salvation, just like Luke pointed out, that the Savior is going to bring freedom. Freedom from oppression, freedom from bondage. This is different. Also notice another characteristic that is very contra what most kings are, and that is the humility. He is going to be humble. Now, what kind of a king does a victory lap on a donkey? This does not fit, right? This is very backwards. And worse than that, an untrained, inexperienced colt of a donkey. Now, you're already thinking forward, I'm assuming, to what Luke 19 tells us about the triumphal entry. We'll get there. But there's a couple of interpretive things that I think help us understand that this is not a human king. God is not telling them to watch for the next monarch that's going to come up and literally sit on the throne. This is prophecy language so that they anticipate and look for a deliverer. So this word, humble, is the same Hebrew word for afflicted. And now when we start putting things together, we think, okay, where else in the prophets do we read about someone who is coming, a deliverer who will be afflicted? And you should be thinking of Isaiah 53. When he says, surely this suffering servant, this promised Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Same word is used here in Zechariah 9. So we can kind of put things together and say, okay, this is starting to make sense. We're seeing some themes and some trends through the Old Testament. But then when we keep reading and we get, like I said, to Luke 19, what do we see? Jesus, on his last entry into Jerusalem, coming to do what the Father sent him to do, coming to redeem his people, to die for them, to give up his life as the good shepherd, he comes in, not as a conquering hero, when you think about what he was going to do, and he knew exactly what he was going to do, this should have been a magnificent thing, and it was in some ways, but you get, you get the point. He doesn't come as a decorated veteran. He doesn't come as a conquering king. He comes, just as Zechariah said, on the colt of a donkey. So I'm saying that this king in Zechariah 9 is none other than Jesus Christ the Messiah, the one who is righteous, the one who is humble, the one bringing salvation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 9. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. No other king has this. No one else speaks peace and has the power to effect it. Nobody else has a kingdom that goes from this end of the world to that end of the world. This is Hebrew idiom language from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the world. No one else does that. This is no human king. This is Jesus, the promised deliverer who is coming. Now, in this last section of chapter 9, we're going to see the shepherding care of this Messiah king. So God says, behold, your king is coming. And we can say, okay, what's he going to do? When he gets here, this is what we see in these last verses. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Now on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness 
and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Now notice the contrast between the kingdom that this promised Messiah is going to usher in and the kingdoms of the world. Most times when a king comes into a country, be it in conquest or if he inherits the land or whatever, he brings with him taxes, laws, regulation, and servitude oftentimes. So for them to hear the news of, hey, a king's coming, there has to be some good news attached to this because that doesn't always equate to good news. But God says, rejoice because your king is coming and he is good He is faithful. He's going to care for you. It will not be so with the shepherd king. He will not be harsh, but he's coming to care for his people. And the result of this care is that the people flourish. They do good because God is good. And like jewels on a crown, they will shine. I just think what a a precious promise. I mean, the recipients of this original message had been through the ringer. Exile, slavery, poverty, spinning their wheels, all of this kind of stuff, and they get this message, your king is coming. And he's going to love you, he's going to care for you, and you know what? It's the same king that we have. Isn't that great? We can, we can read this, and we can read things like, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, and as the recipients of his goodness, and as the observers of his beauty, you and I can say yes. Rejoice, Grace Bible Church, because your king has come. What good news. What great news. Now as we continue on into chapters 10 and 11, these are kind of grouped together, they're going to show us the importance of following the right leaders. Okay, so chapter 9 shows us, here's, here's the coming king, here's what he's going to do. And then chapters 11 or 10 and 11 show us it's so important to follow the right leaders. It is so important to have people you can actually put your trust in. Now, as we think back on Israel's history, so many of God's leaders were shepherds. Vocationally, I mean, that's what they did. They cared for sheep. Now, you remember, we've said this quite a few times, that the physical things in the Bible, the literal things, often are meant to help us understand a spiritual reality. So it is no coincidence that all through Israel's history, many of its, what we would consider its great leaders, were shepherds. Abraham, the father of faith, was a shepherd. Jacob who later God named Israel and became the father of that nation, was a shepherd. Moses, the giver of the law, was a shepherd. David, the man after God's own heart, was a shepherd. This is not coincidence. What God is trying to tell us through all of these examples is that there is a certain characteristic, there is a certain quality to godly leadership. And it really matters who we put our trust in as leaders. But more than just a vocational detail here, when the Bible speaks of shepherding, it has to do with leadership. And oftentimes it's spoke of in really positive terms that shepherds care for their sheep, they protect their sheep, but also there are some warnings, there are some indictments against bad shepherds. 
against those who do not protect their sheep, but take advantage of their sheep. This is kind of what we're going to see here in these next couple of chapters, that there's some shenanigans going on with the shepherds, and God isn't having it. And he's going to call them out for their failure to obey him. Now the main issue, I think, in chapters 10 and 11 can be boiled down to verse 3 of chapter 10. Look in your Bible at verse 3 of chapter 10. God says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, for the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So do you hear that indictment there? The Lord's anger is hot against the shepherds. This is no small thing, by the way. And why is God so exercised? What is stirring him up into this kind of language? It is the failure of the leaders to act like leaders. It is their failure to stand between their people and the danger, the issue whatever it might be. So as we move into chapter 10, we see some characteristics, not only of what the bad things are, we're going to get those, but he, again, he starts chapter 10 by saying what is good. What, what is this promised Messiah going to do when he comes? Yes, he'll bring peace. Yes, his kingdom will expand. All of the things we formerly saw, and this is kind of on the tail end of this section before we turn to the negative examples, but look at verse 4 and 5 from chapter 10. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Now notice there's three kind of main images, characteristics that we see in those couple verses. First, the cornerstone. We've seen this quite a bit, haven't we, in the past weeks and months? The cornerstone in building was the measure, the standard by which the whole building was built upon. It was the foundational piece that set the limits and the orientation for the whole building. So as the cornerstone, this good leader provides a sure foundation. I don't know if you've ever been under bad leadership in your job, in a volunteer situation, whatever, but when things are unstable... It is really hard to follow. When you have no idea what's going on or what your next order is or whatever, it is really hard to follow. Not so in God's economy. The, the cornerstone imagery is giving us this picture of a sure foundation. There is surety with this person. Now this word translated tent peg can, of course, be the peg driven into the ground with the rope that goes up to hold the tent in place. Also, this was used in the home as a structural piece that other layers of the home would be stacked upon. So whatever interpretation we take, this tells us that a good leader provides stability. No matter what comes up, wind, rain, hurricanes, earthquakes, whatever, there is stability to this dwelling because a good leader ensures that things are in place and taken care of. Now lastly, this image of the battle bow tells us that a good leader is willing to fight for his people. And I'm not talking about someone who's aggressive, mean. I'm talking about someone who knows the truth and is willing to defend it. Someone who will put himself between harm's way and those who are weaker, those who are more vulnerable, 
Someone who is willing to lead by example and to say, no, that's not coming near my people. I'll stand between that. A good leader goes to the mat for his people. He distances them from the danger. These are all characteristics of what we should look like in faithful leaders, faithful shepherds, someone who will stand for his people, someone who will defend them. These are all characteristics of faithful shepherding. Now, let's move on to chapter 11. The first three verses point us to our need for a greater shepherd by showing us what happens if we trust in human leadership alone. Of course we have to trust human leadership, right? God works through means. We are not a theocracy. We don't hear directly from God. We submit ourselves to human leadership. But there is a danger that we need to watch out for, and that's what this chapter is getting at, that when leaders go south, when it heads the wrong direction, there are consequences. Now these first three verses of chapter 11 talk about trees, there's cypress, and there's oaks, and there's uh, cedars, and all this stuff. Now there's there's not an environmental concern here, okay? So when we see the wailing and the lament because the trees have been taken away, this isn't the forestry service getting worked up. Trees are representative of leaders, kings, people in high position. That's a language that was used in the ancient Near East. So when we see that these trees have been taken away, this is the consequence of bad leadership. They've made poor decisions. They have not sought the Lord. They have not listened to wise counsel. And as a result, God gives them over to the natural consequence of their decisions, and they are taken away. This text specifically is in reference, it's a prophetic text looking forward to when, uh, if you remember a little bit about church history, 70 AD, there's an insurrection in Jerusalem. And one of the Jewish rebels leads this kind of charge against Rome. Well, what happens? Rome responds with overwhelming force. Titus comes in, he's a Roman general, and levels Jerusalem. The whole thing, temple and all, gets destroyed. And the wailing and the lamenting is the people saying, what happened to our leaders? Why didn't anyone warn us of the danger? Why didn't anyone stand up? But rather, they followed their own way and they are destroyed and leveled. This is a sobering text. Prophesying what happens when shepherds act like wolves instead of like shepherds. Now, in the middle of chapter 11... Uh, Verses 4 to 14, we have a little bit of interpretive work to do. We see these two staffs. We see three other shepherds. So let's look at this section and see what's going on. As we look at verses 4 to 14 in chapter 11, I think, you be the judge, but I think we need to see this section in direct relation to the ministry of Jesus. This is foreshadowing what is going to happen in the ministry of the Messiah. Without that, it would be really hard to make sense of what's going on here. And just to give you a little bit of encouragement, how thankful that we all should be that we have the Bible to fill in the rest of the story. Imagine the original hearers of this, hearing this without the knowledge of Jesus who was born and died for his people and all the subsequent events. They don't know that yet. They get little pictures But imagine being the recipient of this kind of language and just going, I don't know. That's why it was so important that the prophets followed God 
so that they could tell the people what was going on. So anyways, I'm looking at this as a direct corollary to the ministry of Jesus, and I'm going to show you that as we work through this because I think it helps make much more sense. So what's happening is God calls Zechariah now to be a shepherd. He calls him to shepherd these people who are doomed for slaughter. And in so doing, the point is that we can look at Zechariah's ministry and see what's going to be like when the Messiah comes. And not in a good way. Okay, So here's what's going on. In this shepherding ministry, Zechariah takes up two staffs. We know what staffs are for. We've talked about this before. For guidance, for direction, for discipline, keeping the flock as it should be. One staff is called favor, which represents God's promises, his his joy, his provision to his people. And the other staff is called union. Now this is not just union between God and his people, which it is, but it's also meant to communicate the union between the people themselves that they are going to be brought back together under one shepherd, both Israel and Judah. If you remember your history a little bit, Israel and Judah had been split. God had divided the nations as a covenant consequence of their disobedience. And now what's happening is we're being told there's coming a time when unity is going to be restored, when Israel and Judah are going to be united back together under one shepherd. So... Zechariah takes up this shepherding ministry knowing that it isn't going to succeed. These are a people doomed to be slaughtered, but God says, do it anyway. And he's only been at this for a month, 30 days, when he says he destroyed the three shepherds. We're like, what does that mean? Who are those guys? Was he one of four and we just didn't hear about the other guys at first? Or or what's going on with the three shepherds and why would they be destroyed? Now, it was interesting as I was reading this week, There are more than 40 interpretations of what verse 8 means. (laughs) For some reason, this has just been a real hot topic uh, in the classroom, and there are so many different interpretations of what's going on here. I tend to agree with the oldest and longest standing interpretation that says the three shepherds are the three classes of leadership that had existed in Israel. So we had prophets, priests, and kings. Okay, well, what does it mean then that Zechariah destroys them? I think a better translation perhaps would be uh, set them aside or, or laid them aside, something like that. I, I get what's going on with the word destroyed. I'm not sure it's the best translation. So what's happening is that God is communicating that now in this new economy, no longer are there going to be disjointed offices. The, the prophet does one thing, and the priest does one thing, and the king does another thing. But all of these are going to be combined into one ministry of this greater shepherd. So that's what the, 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 the unity, the staff of unity, that's what he's talking about. So these three shepherds represent the prophet, priest, and king and their ministries. And we say, well, why did those have to be? Why, why the shuffling around? Why did this have to be redone? Well, if you remember, again, just even a surface-level reading, the prophets of God eventually stopped speaking the words of God because it was getting them in trouble. (laughs) So they would just say whatever would keep them alive. The priests turned away from the Lord. They were led astray by idolatry and the worship of foreign gods. And as goes the leadership, so goes the people. So they led everybody astray and the kings. Yeah, we don't need to say much about the kings. We know they did not hold up to the test. 
So all three of these offices had their chance, and all three of them failed. But the promise of the future Messiah and his ministry, which, which Zechariah is now exemplifying, is that all three of those offices are going to be joined into one shepherd. A shepherd who is the prophet who speaks the word of God. A shepherd who is the priest who makes atonement and sacrifice for the people of God. And a shepherd who is the king who will rule the people of God. So that's what's going on with the I destroyed the three shepherds comment. I think this is the unification of these three roles in the messianic office. Now notice in verse 8 also another similarity between Zechariah's shepherding ministry and Jesus. The end of the verse. But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. Now Jesus in his earthly ministry often dealt with the hardness of heart of the Jewish people. They, they would stop their ears. They would harden their hearts. They didn't want to accept him as Messiah. And there are times when he became frustrated with them. Not in a sinful way, but a justified way. Why aren't you getting this? Of all people, you should understand. But they didn't get it. And just like with Zechariah, we read in the Gospels that the people detested Jesus. To fulfill prophecy. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. This is all according to plan. Well, Zechariah gets fed up with this. He's not at it very long, and he breaks these two staffs, which is another way of saying, I'm done. You guys want to go your own way? You want to ignore the instruction of God? You're not going to take to heart this teaching that I'm giving to you? Fine. Boom, he snaps the staff. Have it your way. And boy, do they get it their way. Now, even though Zechariah has annulled this agreement with them, which we see in his breaking of the staffs, saying, I'm not in this anymore, he still asks for his wages. I love this. This guy's got some guts. And so he goes to the people and he says, hey, you owe me for this, for this shepherding work that I've been doing. And so they talk amongst themselves and they decide to give him 30 pieces of silver as his payment for this shepherding ministry. Now, of course, you're thinking, Judas betrays Jesus. He gets 30 pieces of silver for that. Definitely connected here. But let me tell you something else that makes this really significant. In the Torah, in the law, there was a, there was a law that stated if a slave was maimed, injured, lost a limb, was basically worthless, couldn't work anymore, that slave could be sold for 30 pieces of silver. So this is like the lowest possible form of recognition that there could be in the economy of Israel. This isn't just a random number. What's being communicated here is that the ministry of this shepherd was so despised, so ignored, so insignificant to the people that they're like, nah, you're worth about as much as an injured slave. Give them that. So what does that tell us now as we think about the ministry of Jesus? And Judas betraying him for the same amount. You see the parallels that we're trying to make here? That Jesus in his ministry was so despised, so looked down upon, so rejected, that when they finally get access to him through Judas, the religious leaders say, yeah, that's about what it's worth. 30 pieces of silver. So much wrapped up in this, and every detail is important.
as a result of God's people rejecting his word, not following the instructions that he's given to them, he hands them over and tells them in the, in the end of chapter 11 that he's going to allow worthless shepherds. And in fact, this is so strange to us, but he tells Zechariah to conduct himself in a worthless manner. That's unusual instruction. But the point being that the people who reject God, who reject his institution, who reject his leaders and these shepherds bear the full weight and consequence of their decisions. That's what's going on here. You can't continually follow bad leadership and expect no consequence. Right? It just, as goes the leaders, so go the people. And so there comes a point, and this this reminded me of Romans 1 as I was studying this week. Remember? When people reject the word of God and they instead choose to follow their own ways and God three times I think it's 24, 26, and 28 or something of verse of chapter 1 in Romans. God handed them over. He gave them over. He handed them over. There comes a point, and this should be the most sobering thing that you can know. There comes a point that the rejection of God brings about consequences. And God says, okay, you reject my word, you stop your ears, you harden your heart, have it your way. And we know that our way, apart from God, is death. (laughs) So this is very sobering. This ends on a really, really sobering note. There are consequences to who we follow. And that's what I want you to take away. As we come to the end of chapter 11, I was just thinking, okay, what's what's the takeaway here? This is... We don't deal with with shepherds in the same way, but you get the illustration, right? And the main thing that I'm thinking here is that it matters so much who you follow. It is so significant who you allow to influence your life. I don't care how old you are or how young you are, it matters. Who are you following? Who do you look up to? Who is someone you admire? What is their character like? Remember what we said earlier that all the examples of shepherding in the Bible should tell us something about what leadership is? That shepherds don't lord it over the ones under them. They don't abuse them. They don't take advantage of them. But rather they care for them. They instruct them. They tend to them. Are those the kind of people that you're following? Be so careful. Be so careful who you let influence you. It matters. It matters tremendously. Now people get into leadership for all kinds of reasons, right? Some people are power hungry. They just want to be the one to make the decision, to have control over everything. Some people genuinely want to use what God gave them to serve people and to provide leadership. But no matter which is the case, the point of this, I think, text tells us all human leadership will eventually fail. In some way. I'm talking catastrophic all the time. Sometimes that happens. But all human leadership is subject to this one thing called sin. Therefore, all of it will fail. So the point of this and the point of Zechariah's ministry pointing forward is for us to recognize, okay, there is weakness 
There is susceptibility in human leadership, but not so with this coming shepherd king. So as we look around and we see, I mean, what would it take you? 10 seconds to find a leader who's failed in the past week? Jesus will never fail you. All of the negative imagery is meant to contrast with the perfection of the shepherd king. So we can look to Jesus and have confidence that he will not abandon, he will not abuse, he will not neglect the people under his care, far be it from him, because he is the good shepherd. There may be bad kings, there may be bad shepherds, but Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. Isn't that a blessing to know? Amen. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, we repent before you that our hearts are so often attracted to and enamored by popularity and public figures and all the people around us, celebrities and influencers and people who think to have it all together and we're, we're, we're kind of awestruck by that. But God, as we've seen today, all human leadership will eventually give in to sin. And so we praise you for the example of Jesus who never, ever gave in to the temptation to sin He never had a bad thought. He never had wrong motivations. But in his role as prophet, priest, king, and shepherd, he perfectly leads his people by laying down his life for his sheep. So God, as we come now to the table and we have an opportunity to remember what Christ has done as our shepherd king, help us to put our hope in our confidence in Christ alone who took on flesh to ransom us from our bondage to sin. So God, we thank you. Thank you for these examples in Zechariah. Help us to take this to heart and to look to Jesus for our hope and our confidence. And it's in his name that I pray now. Amen.